Hello and welcome to today's podcast. We have an absolute treat for you in the form of Dr. Chandru Rajam, an educator, entrepreneur. Today he's going to talk to us about his experiences living, studying and working on multiple continents. With that, I'm going to let Dr. Chandru Rajam tell you his story. Hey Chandru. Hi, how are you Venkat? Very good, very good. Welcome to the podcast. So, Thank you for uh, having me here. Sure thing. Thanks for making the time. So, um what I wanted to do today is uh, give you a chance to wander down memory lane a little bit and also look forward and um maybe we can break it out into two parts and start with a little bit about uh you know your experiences your background your you know what you've done over the years which is uh very interesting so maybe we can um get started with you know all your experiences about you know both studying abroad and living abroad and um whatever you feel comfortable talking to us about sure uh, thank you again for uh, inviting me to share my reflections about uh, my journey uh-huh. and um I um I'm obviously um one can tell from my name uh Indian by origin. Uh-huh. Uh I have been uh depending on your perspective fortunate uh uh or and privileged or, or not um to have been born initially uh, born in Malaysia uh, initially uh-huh. raised there until the age uh-huh. of 11 and then my uh-huh. family moved to India to the south uh-huh. of India. uh to a uh, small uh, city by the name of Trichy uh-huh. and uh, that's where i finished up high school so my uh-huh. primary education was in kuala lumpur malaysia and my secondary education was in trichy uh-huh. i attended for those uh, who are uh, from india you will be familiar with the school uh, system called the cbse or the central board of secondary education and uh-huh. i attended a cbse school in trichy and um was uh, fortunate enough to be able to go study uh, mechanical engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology in Kharagpur mm-hmm. uh, after which i got my mba from the indian institute of management in calcutta well wow. so mm-hmm. these were uh, formative experiences uh, as uh, any uh, any uh, um, alumnus of either of these institutions will uh, will attest to and mm-hmm. uh, i think in many ways shaped me uh it became quite clear uh fairly early on during my um days as an engineering student that i was not particularly interested in matters technical uh-huh. uh it was one of uh, the few career choices that were very sought after in those days growing up in india and yep. uh and so uh, that's where i ended up but uh i think it became quite clear that i was much more interested in people issues social issues and towards the end of my engineering i ended up taking electives that were more industrial management related and mm-hmm. and then the mba kind of took that uh a step further uh it was not quite uh, atypical for people of my generation to follow that path often it was a sought after path but it was also considered a safe path uh from the perspective of uh employability uh-huh and so many of my classmates um 
even if they pursued the early careers in engineering, would end up often uh, doing an MBA or some kind of business uh, or finance uh, uh, degree uh, in order to improve their employment um, chances uh, to make themselves more employable and marketable. So many of my MBA classmates from the uh, IIM Calcutta ended up um, working for consumer products companies, working for commercial banks, for investment banks, uh, or for uh, premier marketing companies. Some obviously went back to their roots in engineering management, production planning for some of the large industrial enterprises of the year of, of that era, uh, mm-hmm. like Tata Steel and Tata Motors and Aisha Tractors and, uh, and ITC and, and whatnot. Um, so that was my journey up to uh, the end of a, a master's degree. I uh, came to the United States. I currently live in the U.S., so I, that's why I say I came to the United States in uh, 1985 um, uh-huh. as a, uh, to pursue a Ph.D. in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I um, hadn't entirely decided that I wanted to be an academic, um, uh-huh. but in those days, um, if you wanted to do something in the social sciences or in business or law, um, there weren't opportunities to... Uh, come to the United States except through education. Right. And uh, since I already had an MBA and since I couldn't afford to study in the United States on my own, uh, the PhD ended up being a, a, a logical uh, a step. Uh, like uh-huh. I said, I hadn't entirely decided to become an academic, but I thought that uh, if I got a scholarship, it would give me an opportunity to come to the U.S., um, and, and see where life took me. So I ended up pursuing a PhD in business and, uh, and, and I focused on corporate strategy and business strategy and international business. Those were the areas um, that most excited me even back in B school during my MBA days uh, uh-huh. and uh, eventually graduated with a PhD and went on to take up a teaching job at the University of Colorado uh, on its uh, Denver campus and where I taught for four years. So that's... Uh, that's my, um, and actually ended up um, spending my first eight years in the United States, largely in academic settings. First as a PhD student at the Pennsylvania State University, uh-huh. uh, and then for four years as an assistant professor uh, at the University of Colorado uh, in Denver. Wow, so that, that's quite a transition. Um, and, and how did you like the academic world? How did you like the teaching world? I thoroughly enjoyed my career as a, as a teacher, uh, as, a, as, a, as a university professor. Um, I uh, didn't realize uh, how much I enjoyed uh, teaching. Obviously, nobody does uh, realize how much they enjoy something until they've given it a shot. So right. I was no different in that regard. But, but I think um, I took quite naturally to teaching for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, just in terms of my personality, uh, I would describe myself as an as an extrovert. Yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a people person. I enjoy uh, conversations. I enjoy uh, making relationships, making friends. Uh, I I easily befriend people, and I'm approachable. So I think those qualities served me well um, as a university professor uh, in an academic setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also the thrill of um, 
of being able to impart what you know to an audience of students. Sure. Uh, and that was always uh, uh, an exciting aspect of the profession. Now, every profession has its pluses and minuses uh-huh. and, uh, and academia is no different. But I think, um, but I think it, it fit my personality quite well. And uh, it allowed me to shine so much so that I actually look forward to teaching. Uh, and to this day, I, um, I have tried to be in that situation whenever possible. I, I no longer teach at a university, but that's, that's a whole other story. But uh, in the, uh, all those years when I did teach, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the classroom experience, the interaction. Uh, and the ability, uh, above all, to be among young uh, young people, um, they kept you honest. They kept you thinking. They kept you on your toes. And and students have an, in, uh, a unique ability to ask you questions. That uh, even if you were teaching a course for the tenth time, kind of uh, as a way yeah. of making you uh, introspect and think about something from a different angle and, and one that had never occurred to you before. So, what are, what kind of courses did you teach? So I. Um, I taught co- courses on strategy, or strategic management, and corporate strategy. Those are all synonyms for that mm-hmm. body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also taught international business. Uh, that mm-hmm. was the supporting discipline in my PhD program, and I built on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and after I left the United States um, in, uh, uh, from Denver, I, I moved to the National University of Singapore um, and uh, taught there for, for nine years thereafter. Uh, from the uh, early to uh, uh, throughout the 90s, uh, from about 1993 uh, and, and until 2002. So um, I, between my teaching in the United States and in Singapore, um, I taught variations, different courses, uh, core courses, electives around these two uh, bodies of knowledge, strategic management and international business. Obviously, when I taught in Singapore, I taught it with an Asian slant. Mm-hmm. Um, because the economies of East Asia and Southeast Asia had been booming in those years. And so um, it, uh, it was incumbent upon us to try to adapt the material that we had largely inherited from a U.S. perspective and teach it from an Asian perspective. So why, why did you move to Singapore? What made you do that? So, um, as I mentioned um, earlier, I was born um, and raised uh, initially in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Uh-huh. So, part of the decision to move to Singapore was uh, was to be closer to my family. Uh-huh. I'd been away from home from the age of 17 uh-huh. and coincidentally uh, returned to Asia uh, when I was 34. So, uh, half my life had been at home and and I was returning to the region um, after uh, another 17 years. But more importantly, um, so part of it was obviously personal and my dad had just passed away the year before. Mm -hmm. And so this was a a homecoming of sorts for me to be closer to the rest of the family. But Mm -hmm. I think the other uh, aspect of it was professional uh, in that um, I had in my research and my reading and my teaching I've uh, been uh, very impressed with what was going on in East Asia, um, J- with Japan being the first in the industrializing uh, Asian country, mm-hmm. uh, and thereafter followed by South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, 
uh, and, and Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, and the Philippines, and so on. So it was a very dynamic region. And as a professor of business uh, strategy and as a professor of international business, um, I found that region uh, an exciting place to be. So uh, it was a choice that was made easy by the fact that I had family there uh, and uh, and professionally Singapore seemed like a, a perfect, uh, you know, combination between East and West. It offered good um, professional opportunities uh, for, for someone relocating halfway around the world. Right. But it also offered uh, a, a, an interesting natural experiment where the economies were booming and, uh, you know, the companies and, and entrepreneurs were thinking big uh, and, and thinking about exciting possibilities. So I, I lived uh, in Singapore for a total of 12 and a half years, and uh, the first nine of which were uh, as a business school professor at the National University of Singapore. And then I went into industry. My first job was not that far away from academia. I became founding dean of an online business school that had been funded by 16 universities from four continents uh, on one side and, and a publisher, a textbook publisher called Thompson Learning. Uh, it mm-hmm. now is called Cengage, but in the old days it was Thompson Learning, and they put in half the money. And so it was a, it was a joint venture, uh, a startup uh, online business school. That in the early days of online education, you know, we we were making a valiant attempt to to offer business education, but obviously infrastructure uh, and other challenges uh, were were quite steep to overcome. Um, for a variety of reasons, I, I left there after a year. It was a, it was a startup environment. I had uh, burned myself out. Uh, I think I worked like 20 hour days. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was an incredible uh, uh, opportunity. Um, but I, um, I then got headhunted, uh, recruited, I should say, um, by, a, by the Economist Group. Uh, I'm sure most, yeah. most of your listeners sure. are familiar with The Economist magazine. I didn't go work for the magazine, but it was a sister division, another division within the group uh, called the Economist Intelligence Unit. And I had the opportunity to work there as a regional director. And it was a, it was a very privileged opportunity because um, I got to interact with uh, multinational company CEOs for the region. So these were people who worked for large uh, global multinational companies, often of Western origin but they were managing all of Asia Pacific or all of Southeast Asia. Uh, and so that was a, uh, that was a privileged uh, uh, opportunity where I got to interact with them, explain what was going on in the macro economy in Asia as well as globally, and then help them navigate uh, the, the business um, as they operated in each of those markets in that region. So it was a, it was a good opportunity. I, I got to be on TV a lot on CNBC and BBC on a regular basis uh-huh. uh, because, uh, again, I represented a, a, a fairly popular uh, and, and influential brand, The Economist. Sure. And, and, and that was, uh, it was really a, a privileged uh, opportunity. Some years prior to that, while I was te- still teaching at the, at the National University of Singapore, I was invited to ch- chair and moderate conferences for the U.S. publisher called Business Week. Yep. Uh, it's now Bloomberg Business Week. In those days, it was a part of McGraw-Hill. Yeah. And, uh, and that was another very unique and, uh, and, and wonderful opportunity where I got to uh, serve as uh, moderator and chairman for 50 conferences whole, uh, for CEOs, CIOs, CFOs and, uh, in the region. Uh, and I learned a lot as a business school professor. You know, the, the theory is what you're trained with in the PhD program 
but then uh, the conferences offered uh, a practitioner perspective, which I was able to marry when I when I came back to the classroom uh, to deal with, you know, to to interact with my students. I want to add one more thing. So while I was uh, teaching at the National University of Singapore, I was called upon by the dean to launch a new, a brand new executive MBA program. We had a regular MBA program, but didn't have an executive MBA program, usually targeted at much more senior executives. Mm-hmm. And so that was another very privileged opportunity. He could have chosen any one of the remaining 150 professors, but he trusted in a fairly young academic at the time. And, uh, and I, um, I, I was called upon to do that. And that was, uh, that was another very uh, powerful experience. I had to uh, create the program from scratch, obviously with input from colleagues and administrators. Uh, and then we launched the program in a record six months and uh, had uh, an initial batch of 24 students. Uh, uh, they, were, they came from, I think, something like 10 or 12 countries. Uh, these uh, senior executives who had, had a minimum of 10 years of work experience in order to be admissible to the program. Many of them had 17 and 20 years experience. Sure. So m- more than half the class, uh, the first class uh, that we brought in was older than I was. So you can imagine <laughs> what that dynamic was like. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was quite a, I ran that program for four years and I'm pre- pleased to say that it is still highly ranked globally by Financial Times and, and so I had a little legacy I left behind in, uh, at the National University of Singapore. Now, how different was it transitioning from the U.S. to Singapore? You know, obviously, you were from the region, but <clears throat> how, did it, um, how did it feel and what were the differences? So I had left uh, Malaysia when I was 11. So I was returning uh, almost, you know, two decades later um, as a as a professional. Um, and so my perspective had been had been quite has had had been different uh, or, sure. or came to be different, I, I should say, uh, when I returned to the region. I had never worked there, never gone to school or even high school or, or college. So in that respect, I was a visitor, a newcomer. Mm-hmm. But I also understood the culture locally. I understood the dynamics between, you know, the uh, various ethnic communities there. Um, there was Malays in Malaysia and Indonesia and Brunei, the Chinese in, in, as minority in, in many of the countries in Southeast Asia, but also as the majority population in Singapore. Sure. I understood um, at, a, at, a, at a visceral level uh, what these cultures uh, were like to interact with. Uh, but it was interesting, obviously, coming there to work. Uh, and to your specific question, I think in the United States, uh, students tend to be much more vocal in their uh, participation and their ability to ask questions or challenge the instructor. And that was always uh, an exciting aspect of teaching in the United States in that you're kept on your toes uh, and there's always healthy debate and discussion in the classroom. And mm-hmm. as a student of business, um, or any anywhere in the social sciences or humanities, that's very important because because nobody has the uh, all the answers, not even the professor. Mm-hmm. And there is no one right answer in these disciplines. Uh, you discover perspectives. You look at something from another perspective. You 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 critique. Uh, you debate. You discuss. And out of that comes understanding. Um, so uh, you know. So the United States uh, classroom environment tends to be much more vibrant. Uh, especially at the master's level, at the graduate level, and I taught MBAs uh, as well as undergraduate uh, classes in the U.S. Now, when I moved to Singapore, I found that culturally, uh, the vast majority of Singapore students tended to be more reticent. They were quieter. 
Um, I think part of it is just the cultural, as as I alluded to yeah. a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. The um, col- the Singapore uh, population is seventy seventy five percent ethnic Chinese yeah. uh, immigrants. Uh, they tended to be quiet and reticent and shy. And so it was a challenge to try to draw them out um, into class discussions. And, and you had to do, you had to try different strategies to make sure it was uh, it was a, a non-threatening environment, one in which they felt comfortable expressing themselves. So here's a, so very interesting that you went from academia to industry. What was that transition like? So that was uh, um, that was that was a humbling experience in in some ways because you when you are in business and as a manager or an, as a, as an executive, um, you're always uh, expected to deliver uh, actual performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm not suggesting that academics don't have to deliver; I mean, they too have to be held accountable for their research or their mm-hmm. teaching. But it's a very different kind of uh, set of deliverables that you're responsible for in business and industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think, you know, as much as I had been um, a business school professor and knew the theory about how organizations are run or businesses are managed or led, um, it is quite another thing trying to do that and implement that. So I think, you know, in my um, in my 40s, um, I, I had, uh, you know, finally an opportunity to actually put things into practice. Um, and, and, you know, there were lots of lessons along the way, p- managing people, managing uh, budgets, uh, delivering on metrics and, and targets. Um, so it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Um, obviously, it was easier for someone like me who had already been a student of business to make that transition as opposed to, let's say, had had I been a chemistry professor or a physics professor or an astronomy professor, I think the transition might have been a little bit more steep yep. uh, and, and difficult because I had already been familiar with the subject matter of business and management and leadership. Um, at least I saw and could recognize the patterns as they unfolded in the workplace. My journey, to answer your question, then I, I worked in Singapore for another two or three years after I left academia. And then an, a completely different life-changing opportunity came along for me to become an entrepreneur. Um, I had been dabbling with the idea. Remember, uh, uh, the 19, uh, late 1990s and early 2000s have been the era of the dot-com. Yep. And I had seen many of my former colleagues, friends, uh, associates, go on to become entrepreneurs. And uh, I always felt like I had missed that opportunity uh, when it was unfolding in Silicon Valley and in the US as mm-hmm. a whole. Uh-huh. Uh, I was away in Asia, and, you know, and so in 2005, uh, we, we wanted to launch, we and a couple of colleagues and, and I wanted to launch a business. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get funding from uh, a prominent Indian industrial group uh, and that um, essentially meant uh, moving back to the U.S. in order to be serving clients. So mm-hmm. I relocated with my family. I had gotten married in Singapore uh, a year or two after I had moved there. Uh-huh. So by then we had two children. So my wife and I and our two children were eight and five at the time, moved back to the United States in January of 2006. Uh-huh. Uh, it was primarily to 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 launch this new business, 
and we moved to a suburb of Washington D.C. where we still currently live. Uh-huh. And uh, and again, you know, talk about transition. That was yet another transition in my life, where I went from you know dabbling in business and industry and media for Business Week and Economist to a a startup environment where essentially you have to create something from scratch. And it's a scary proposition when you have two young kids yep. and you move back halfway around the world. Uh, and uh, just as an aside, this might be of interest to some of your international student audience. Uh, I had been a permanent resident of the US. Uh, I, I, when I moved to Singapore, eventually I became a permanent resident of Singapore and I let my permanent residency of the US lapse. Uh-huh. I had no plans to return to the US. <laughs> But life has a way of taking you on detours. And here I was in 2006, having returned to the U.S. uh, now with uh, no more green card, no more permanent residency, and essentially starting from scratch. Um, And so it wasn't just the business and my career that was starting from scratch, but um, but also, you know, my immigration status. Uh, But, you know, we, 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 we worked and we tried to make it work. Um, and uh, so it's been 14 years now since I returned to the U.S. And uh, I, I don't think I've lived anywhere for more than 14 years. <laughs> so it's 14 coming years up. in India. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> so it was uh, 11 years in, in Malaysia, 14 years in India, you know, eight years in the U.S., and then 12 and a half years in Singapore, and now another 14 years in the U.S. So I don't particularly know which place is home because I've had uh, many homes, but here I am um, still a struggling entrepreneur. And, and that's been another humbling experience. Uh, I've anchored, I know you've uh, launched and, and, and sold companies before. And so you, um, you will re- be able to relate to what I'm saying, but as an entrepreneur um, it, from a business standpoint, you are exposed, you're naked, right? Because yep. no matter what you've done before in life, no matter how smart or how dumb you are, no matter exactly. how gutsy <laughs> or foolish you are or, or brave you are, none of that matters because ultimately you've got to make a new concept work, new business work. And, uh, and that takes work, that takes smarts, that takes uh, a lot of uh, risk. And uh, so this, uh, this has been an, a, a, a privileged journey of a different kind in which I've had to uh, try to make my vision a reality. And I, it's still work in progress. Let me leave it at that. Oh, it's uh, fascinating. Um, it's, uh, you're blessed and you still are blessed to have, you know, varied experiences, lots of transitions. I noted three of them. Um, at least three big ones. And um, it's, I mean, it's very inspiring. And I guess, hard work and, you know, chance and you grab opportunities. So that's, that's really fascinating and very exciting. Thanks for sharing that. So sure. I, and if I could just yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, were you, no, were no, no. you going to ask me? Another thing? No, no, I, I was going to say that I think as I reflect, and I, I probably spent uh, way too much time talking about my background. But I think I think, as I reflect, and, and thank you for this opportunity to reflect on, you know, my journey, um, I, I, I think the biggest transformations for me came when I, um, when I had to move from one country to another mm-hmm. uh, earlier in life. So obviously, having been born in an immigrant family in Malaysia of Indian origin, 
uh, when I moved to India, that was a big transition. It happened fairly early on in my life. Uh-huh. Uh, my parents had been immigrants themselves, so I think it made our journey a little easier because of all the stories you've heard. Sure. Uh, but but leaving India and coming to the U.S. was a whole nother experience, mm-hmm. you know. And and over the years, I've been asked by students uh, looking to study abroad, uh, often of Indian origin, uh, or I've been asked by families, uh, and and I say that. If you can afford it and you can send your child to uh, uh, to the West, the UK, Canada, US, uh, Australia, it doesn't matter. The, the amount of learning they will go through in life outside the classroom far outpaces what they learn in the classroom. It's so transformative is the experience. If you just wanted to study history or engineering or math, there are fine institutions in most places in the world. Right. What makes the experience particularly powerful is the fact that you are, uh, you, you are choosing uh, to be outside your comfort zone. Uh, you go through culture shock and then you adjust and then that becomes the new normal. Mm-hmm. And in through all of this, you know, it's a test of the soul in some ways because you leave the familiar behind. Uh, you embrace change, you embrace different, you try to fit in, uh, you try to adapt, you hold on to the core of who you are uh, through all of the changes in your environment, uh, whether it's your 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 ethnic roots or your religious uh, beliefs uh, or your familiar ways of doing things, your cuisine and so on. Uh, and so it really is uh, something that traverses one's character, uh, traverses one's spirituality, traverses one's mind, stretches us. It allows us to see the commonality of human ex- existence no matter which culture or what language people embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were some of the biggest transformations for me. And I've been very blessed. Uh, and and I, I, I borrow the term that you used. I, I, I feel very blessed because I've had many personal transitions, but I've also had many professional transitions. I could have coasted along doing a lot of things at various points in my career, uh, but I chose to do take the next big leap, not knowing where I will land. Uh, and, you know, um, sometimes I, I landed with a thud and had to pay a price for it. And sometimes I landed, uh, you know, with a gentle uh, fall. But regardless, uh, I think the human ex- experience is one of trans- transiting, transitioning, transcending boundaries. Uh, and uh, and I would I would never turn any of this back if I had to do it again. I think I would do them exactly the way I did. Simply because uh, what you learn from from uh, crossing boundaries, whether it's geographic boundaries, cultural boundaries, career boundaries, professional boundaries, um, you learn a lot about yourself in the process of uh, of, trans- of transcending these boundaries. Well said. That's, uh, that's very well put. So let's uh, talking of trans- uh, transitions. Let's talk about today and you know the future or at least the immediate future um and i in particular just wanted to talk about the current pandemic and the changes that it's bringing and there are all kinds of discussions one can have but one in particular that i wanted to focus on is that uh, as a parent your son is in college he's currently um going through a semester or doing a semester from home online i I'm just curious to see now as a parent, how would you um, how would you consider sending him back to campus and what would have to 
be in place and this is a discussion that's raging right now so i thought we get uh, you know be very interesting to get a very personal sort of view or opinion um what does it take for him to go back to campus sure um and and our our son is a, is a third year student at the university of virginia so he um is uh is his home he was home for spring break and then he got the email uh, uh uh requiring students not to return to campus and so he's been with us now for the, uh, over a month um and um to your point about uh comfort level as a parent to return uh, for a student returning to campus um i i i have a lot of faith in the leadership of uh, most campuses i mean there are one or two institutions that i've read about but that, that don't concern us now but for the most part i think uh, uh, leaders of educational institutions uh, are are uh, are careful and deliberate and thoughtful. I think they're going to, uh, as people of science, they're going to listen to the scientists and the public health officials before they make a decision. Uh-huh. It's well known that most uh, large university campuses in the U.S. draw students from all over the country and and often from many countries abroad. Uh-huh. And so um, I think they're acutely aware of the fact that uh, universities uh, and campuses can become um, hotspots. Sure. Uh, care is not given to to thinking about when to open up and when to have students come back to campus. Um, on any given weekend, students travel. They travel home. Uh, they would might even go halfway around the country on a take a flight on a weekend. So universities can be huge transition points. So I I have full uh, faith in the leadership uh, of this university where my son attends, but also of other uh, campus leaders that they will do the right thing uh, and when and if and when they decide to open up and which is a matter of when not if yeah. uh, whether that's six months from now a year from now or three months from now i would be comfortable uh, for uh, our child to go back to campus and i i think we uh w- one of the most comforting factors for me like i said is that these are leaders who are people of science sure uh, they understand data they understand the science behind it they understand the logic behind it and so I'm quite comforted by the fact that um, universities are taking a cautious approach to this whole thing, even though, you know, economically and financially, it has consequences for them in the in the in the short run. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, at the end of the day, they're answerable to a whole bunch of parents. And um, right. And, and, it is... and, you know, yeah, go ahead. And, and if I if I may uh, persist with that for another moment, I think I think this is the moment of online education I, for for those of us who have been using it and 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 teaching through it and observing what's going on in terms of the digital technology on campus in the learning space. Uh, you know, th- th- this hasn't uh, this. I wish more of it had happened. We could have provided access to students at an earlier time. But I think this pandemic has forced a lot of academics uh, and academic institutions to accept, to invest in, understand how the technology works and to, and to embrace it. And I think in a, in, a, in a blessing in disguise kind of way, the pandemic has forced everyone to take note of the, of the enormous possibilities of online learning. And I would say even if a student who's been accepted to uh, study in the U.S., but who currently lives abroad, uh, an international student, uh, had the opportunity to study online uh, at, and enroll in the university, I would still say it's, uh, it, it's an opportunity not to be missed because what we will increasingly begin to see, I think as a result of this natural experiment is that more and more students 
will engage with their fellow students and their professors and the rest of the campus community through an online medium. Now, obviously, the online cannot substitute for physical interaction. Sure. But, but I think we will see lots of innovation in terms of how to recreate some of the excitement of being on campus through the online medium. And, and you know, uh, online uh, will, I think, begin to change and adapt and, and offer all kinds of opportunities in the months and years ahead. You know, it's probably time to dust off the business plan that you had with Thompson Learning uh, two decades ago. <laughs> uh, you were just ahead of your time. And, uh, you know, timing is everything. And I totally agree with you. I think what what this has also done is brought the, you know, the virtual interaction technology, if you can call it that, to the forefront. And we are beginning to see so many things that can be done um, without, um, you know, without having to physically uh, be present. I mean, and and something like this, if it had happened like 10 years ago, would have been pretty hard to deal with, um, considering all the advancements and, you know, whether it is the Amazons of the world, the delivery services, food, I mean, everything that is going on a lot to be said for technology being where it is so in some sense it was uh, you know great timing if there is such a thing it is it really is i i think you're absolutely right that 10 years ago we would have struggled to even have the modicum of economic activity that we continue to see right now yeah. um but uh, but we're we're in a different space and to that extent we're thankful that it wasn't a complete shutdown of economic activity and uh, so I think we'll, 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 uh, businesses will learn to adapt just as academic institutions will learn to adapt. So fantastic. So Chandru, this was uh, truly illuminating and inspiring. I'm sure uh, the students of tomorrow and the leaders of tomorrow, if they are listening, they, they really like the, both the global and your uh, career changes as well. You know, the different parts of the world that you lived in, as well as, what you've done. And I think, um, you know, I hope to have more conversations with you, get dig a little deeper on some different things. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was uh, truly well, good. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity and the invitation to speak uh, with uh, with your audiences. And again, I wish you luck at uh, Alma Matters. Thanks so much, Chandra. Bye-bye. Take care. Indeed. Hope you enjoyed this wonderful conversation we had with Dr. Chandru Rajam. I also hope that you found it as inspiring and as insightful as I did. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. These podcasts are brought to you by almamatters.io. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you.